Let me add uh, my good morning to you. If I haven't spoken to you today, I hope we will afterward, but uh, glad everyone's here. Glad you are here. Um, a number of our people are out for various reasons, and the auditors will be traveling back from Florida um, later today. Of course, except for Josh, who's with us. Come back for school, right? Not too much fun. Couldn't, couldn't stay gone for too long, right? Um, I know the Quintanas are not um, feeling the best, so be relieved to have them and Jamie particularly. And I know, you know, Flockies let me know that uh, they've had a little bit of a rough week with Benny being sick. So remember, you praying for them. Reach out and let them know that you're, you miss them. And there may be others who uh, don't know the specifics, but we're glad you're here. If you're tuning in, welcome. I'm glad you found us and hope it'll be a blessing to you today. Um, if you have a Bible, um, we're going to be looking in Luke chapter 9, as is our pattern. We uh, take a book of Scripture and work verse by verse through and so we are doing that in the book of Luke. We've been in here for, I guess, uh, 10 months. Started back in January, I believe. And so here we are in chapter 9. Today we'll be looking at verses 18 through 20 or 22, depending on how time goes. Um, so if we can read those, then uh, that would be great in just a few minutes. But before we jump into this, I want to know, does anybody um, recognize the phrase, if I ask the question, who is John Galt? Does anybody recognize that phrase? One person? You better. I need you read that book. So. <laughs> Nobody else. Okay, so uh, anybody recognize the title of the book called Atlas Shrugged? One more person? Yeah, same person. Um, Ayn Rand was a uh, author uh, back, uh, I guess, in the 50s. And uh, she wrote this book that's about this thick uh, <laughs> called Atlas Shrugged. And... Uh, Kind of a treatise on um, uh, the novel, basically you know about political you know, statements and its ideologies and this sort of thing. But in there, she had the sort of this running phrase through society at that time was "Who is John Galt?" He was this mythical character, and it actually became like an idiom that you would just say, "Oh well, what are you going to do?" They say, "Oh well, who is John Galt?" And there's something that people would not even begin to not even equate with the person, the man himself. And it was just sort of a throwaway line. They would just sort of throw out, uh, "Oh well, eh, who's John Galt?" And, um, of course, then later in the novel, spoiler alert, if you're about to read it, you're about to that, getting at that point in the book, I apologize, but he's not dead. And he comes back to have a significant portion in the later parts of the book. Um, but the idea is that this man who shaped the entire world back then, um, John Galt, you know, became nothing more than a, an expression of speech, a figure of speech, as it were. And... Um, it was interesting to, to see that and then to realize this guy's still around and um, just because you don't know who he is, just because no one seems to know who he is and no one even seems to care anymore about who he is or was, doesn't mean he doesn't have a part to play in the story. And uh, say, so what is he talking about? I thought we were preaching the Bible. So why is he talking about some obscure author from 60 years ago? Um, if you know the passage we're looking at, you'll see the parallels I've already started to draw um, because... That's kind of how um, our culture today sometimes views Jesus Christ. You know, everybody knows Jesus Christ. Many people say his name on a regular basis, but almost more as a throwaway figure of speech. Um, really, almost a blasphemous sense, if you want to, you know, be a, take take a hard line on that. And um, yet, this man, who was God in flesh, shaped the world that we live in, and certainly shaped our world. And my personal, you know, world is centered around him. And yet, there are people who Never even think about who he is. 
And uh, so Jesus poses a question today to his disciples that I'm going to pose to you. And it's in our text. So I invite you to go ahead and stand with me. And we will read together a few verses starting in Luke chapter 9. Hopefully we'll have the verses up here on the board. Some of the beautiful pictures of the waterfalls in Yosemite. Never get tired of looking at those. And I invite you to read with me as we pick up in verse 18. Now it happened that he was praying alone. The disciples were with him. And he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist, but others say Elijah, and others that one of the prophets of old has risen. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Thank you. You may be seated. So as we remember, or you may, just to bring you up to speed, of course, um, Jesus is in the middle of his ministry here. Um, he has the, uh, the apostles around him. Morning, Rosie. Good to see you guys this morning. How are y'all? Um, and so he, uh, he, he's been doing a lot of miracles. And um, this question has come up before. We saw Herod ask this question. You know, who is this guy? They thought maybe he was John the Baptist. Of course, John the Baptist had been beheaded by Herod. Right? Herod's ordered orders, so Herod was confused. But the people seemed to really like Jesus. They were following him in multitudes. We just saw last time there was... 5,000 men, a crowd of probably 10 to 25,000 people following him out in the middle of nowhere to hear what he had to say, and he fed them miraculously. And uh, so at this point, though, he's, he's alone with his disciples, and uh, he's praying. And it's interesting the phrasing here Luke records. Now it happened that he, Jesus, was praying alone. As he was praying alone, the disciples were with him. You know, we have times throughout church that someone here is praying at the front. Andrew prayed earlier. I will pray shortly. Other people may pray. And I hope that we don't have a situation when, as the person's up here, he's praying alone and all of you are with us. The idea, of course, is that the person here is leading in prayer and that we are echoing that sentiment more than just with a simple amen at the end in which we give assent to everything that was said, but hopefully we're in a spirit of prayer and it's not a time to, uh, um, you know, fix your clothes or to, uh, you know, scratch your ear or anything. I hope this is the time when we pray that the one leading us in prayer. Um, I remember it used to be a joke that in the Baptist church, prayer was like the curtain closing. You know, everybody bow your head and close your eyes and you look up and now everything's different. The slides are different. The person's different. They all shuffle around during prayer. And I said, yeah, I don't really want us to do that in our church because when they're praying, all those people shuffle around. We should be praying too. And if we're all shuffling around, then we're not praying. So... Oh, no, we have five seconds of gap with nothing happening in between after the amen and before the next thing starts. That's okay. That's as it should be. That's by design. But I'm not going to harp on that any more than just to say, I hope that when you're in a room and someone's praying, that you are being led in prayer and that you're not just there and they are praying alone. So after this, Jesus asked them, hey, what's everybody saying about me? What's everybody saying? He's just starting a conversation. Um, I'm sure he has a good idea of, you know, what's being said and, you know, what the scuttlebutt is in a sense. But he's starting a conversation. And so they answer, you know, as we already read, oh, some think John, Elijah, some one of the prophets of old, you know, they know there's something special about you. 
That's kind of what they're communicating. Everybody knows there's something unique about you. And then he comes down to it, and he says, but who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And that's the question for our sermon today. Who do you say that Jesus is? Who do you think Jesus is? That's the question for today. A lot of people would give different answers to this. Um, like I say, in, in America, most everybody's heard that name, Jesus Christ. You know, maybe not as a, a, a true person, maybe just as a expletive um, or figure of speech. But everyone's heard that. So I wonder, I didn't have time to poll America this week, um, but I was curious. You know, I wonder what sort of responses you would get, even in Charlotte. Uh, that wasn't too long ago. Uh, when we were moving stuff over from the other building, and uh, Adam Kennett had sent somebody over. We had a young man, about 20 years old, helping. We shared the entire gospel with him. He said, have you ever heard this before? He said, no. I've never heard any of that before. Have you heard anything about Jesus? Oh, I've heard that name, but I've never heard who he was. 20 years old, born and raised in Charlotte, right here in the university area. Never heard the gospel story. After our conversation, he knew who Jesus was. But prior to that, if you asked, who is Jesus? You, you would you'd be, I think we would all be surprised, maybe even discouraged at the answers we would get. And uh, so hopefully as we understand that, it will fuel our efforts to be soft light, share the, share the good news of the gospel with those around us. But that's not the point of the question today. The point of the question is not what would other people say. That was just a conversation starter. The question I have is I want you to think, who do you say Jesus is? I say he's the son of God. God made flesh. He came to earth to live the life we couldn't. He died on the cross, paid the price we couldn't, and then was raised three days later, testifying to his divinity. And now is seated at the right hand of God where he makes intercession for us. When he went, he sent the comforter, the Holy Spirit, to help lead us and guide us in our daily lives. He's my Savior. Saved from what? Saved from the wrath of sin, that the penalty of sin that was upon me. That's who I say Jesus is. Hopefully you do too. But I recognize the fact that there are people who dispute that. People who outright reject that. And people who just don't know what to think. So we're going to take a few minutes and we're going to... Uh, answer this question not just for my answer but I want to give you some reasons why I believe that and um, you may want to take some notes it's not going to be an exhaustive study although it is hopefully going to be a thorough study um, but it's going to move quick so uh, you may want to if it's too quick you may want to go back and listen to this um, hopefully the recording will be clear and um, it's, a, it's a lot to cover in a short amount of time so before we do that let's go to the Lord in prayer God in heaven, as we come to you this morning, Lord, and come to this important question, I'd say the most important question, Lord, is who do we think Jesus is? What do we believe about Jesus Christ, Lord? We thank you for your word who reveals him to us and teaches us who he is and what our responsibility is, Father, to him. So as we dig in and study this this morning, Lord, would you speak through me? Would you deliver your message through my mouth, Lord, to the hearts and ears of the people here this morning? And we just uh, ask that, as such, we would receive that message and act on it appropriately. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.
So if Jesus Christ, we know that Christ, of course, is not Jesus' last name, right? <laughs> um, Christ is a title, and uh, it equates to an Old Testament title. Does somebody who's of school age, 18 or under, know what title Christ refers to in the Old Testament? What it equates to in the Old Testament? It starts with an M. I heard somebody say it. Messiah. That's exactly right. And so the Old Testament, um, the word Messiah was used to refer to the one who would be coming um, to save his people. Um, they, uh, the Old Testament is full of prophecies about him. All those are tied to Jesus by the title Christ. Okay? So if Jesus is going to be, be going to be called the Messiah, we need to know, does he fit the criteria for what the Old Testament said of who would come? Now, we can spend a week of Sundays just talk I mean, a month of Sundays just talking about the Old Testament prophecies because there are many. Um, looked up anywhere between three and 400 um, messianic references um, in the Old Testament that Jesus needed to fulfill. Um, some of them were, are a little obscure and just simple references. Um, some, but I would say there are dozens of explicit things that Jesus, you know, fulfilled. Um, that he had no you know, it could not have been orchestrated, could not have been faked. It, uh, no doubt about it, it was what it, it was, things that he had to meet. Um, I encourage you to do, if, if you have questions about this, I encourage you to detail study. Um, again, as I've said before, we live in a wonderful age of Bible study because, you know, like Caleb, when I was your age, if I wanted to study this, I would have to go get the Strong's Exhaustive Concordance. Anybody ever had a Strong's Exhaustive Concordance? Few of us have, yep. Those with big arms, you know, because you have to lift them. It's a, it was a book that was literally this thick and about this big, and it, we, you couldn't even set it on this. You would have to set it on like a table, open it up, and flip through. And it was a laborious task to go find any, you know, any reference to Messiah in the Old Testament or Lamb of God or you know any of these references, the names that would refer. And you go through the Strong's Exhaustive Concordance. They didn't have the verses listed there; just had the references listed there. Then you go get your Bible. You couldn't just search or look at it. Go get your Bible and flip and match them up. Okay, uh, Genesis one. That was easy, you know. And then you go back and forth, back and forth. And that's how you did Bible study. It took forever. Now you can just say, "Hey Google, give me a list of Old Testament prophecies that Jesus fulfilled." It's a lot easier. We are spoiled today. So if, if you're curious about these things, I'm trying to give you the, I want to give you a, a taste, but I want to give you the encouragement, the tools, dig in. If you're not convinced by my words today, the Bible can stand up to your scrutiny. So dig in, look into those things, study it, talk to me. I'd love to get offline and discuss it more with you. But for now, of course, we see even in the Genesis account after the fall, it's foreshadowing that, um, the seed of a woman would crush the serpent's head and would ultimately give victory over Satan. Um, starts there in the very first book. But then more explicitly, we see in Isaiah 9, um, we see messianic references where Isaiah writes, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulder. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. So, as this is universally understood to be a messianic prophecy, we see that this Messiah, this Christ, who Jesus claims to be, would be a wonderful counselor, but would also be the mighty God, be God in flesh. 
okay? This child who was born would actually be the mighty God, El Gabor, as in Hebrew. And uh, so that's one that's ex expressly clear that speaks not only that he is coming, but his very nature, that he is going to be God in the flesh. Micah 5, 2 says, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth one, for you shall come from you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient of days. So Micah specifically foretells he will, the Messiah will be born in Bethlehem, which Jesus was. So the Old Testament, like I say, is full of these, um, dozens of explicit ones like this, and like I say, depending on who's counting, three to four hundred, you know, more general ones as well. Um, so the Old Testament says that the Christ, Messiah, um, is coming and has numerous things to talk about, all of which were fulfilled in the life of Jesus. All of it. So the Old Testament confirms that, that what I believe, that Jesus is God made flesh, the Savior of, of us all. So then let's look and see what did Jesus himself say? I mean, if we're going to, well, I don't want to put, put something on Jesus that he didn't believe or affirm or claim about himself. And I know this is where a lot of people will, will push back, particularly in, in the Muslim faith. Um, I've even seen um, debates where Muslims have talked about and made this point and said, you Christians always want to put the force divinity on Jesus. He never claimed divinity for himself. And I'm like, did you read the New Testament? <laughs> because uh, um, clearly he does. Um, in his attitude, his actions of worship, in his declarations, I was going to give you a couple. In John 8, 58, he's talking to the Pharisees and he says, before Abraham was, I am. Okay, and of course that I am is not just a grammatic in, you know, idiosyncrasy, but it's actually taking on the name of God revealed in the Old Testament, where he said, tell, he told Moses, tell the people that I am who I am. That is the name of God, the I am, the great I am, as we um, often refer to. And so he took that name himself, um, that I am. And you can, there are some who would say, well, you're just, you're just, it's not really what he said. He just, that's not what he, you're, you're assuming that, you know. Oh, you're just seeing connections everywhere. Like that movie, uh, Beautiful Mind. Anybody seen Beautiful Mind? Yeah, you know, where the guy sees, oh, there's a chart on the wall and it's sitting, it's right up against there. You know what that means? doesn't mean anything, <laughs> but he was seeing connections everywhere, right? And everything meant something and uh, sort of the father of conspiracy theories, if you were. Um, but we're not just seeing things because you can look and see how the Jews heard that. How did they hear? How did the people who were contemporaries that he was actually speaking to, what did they understand him to say? Look in John 10, 30 and following, Jesus says, I and the father are one. The Jews picked up stones to stone him. Jesus answered, I have shown you many good works from the Father, for which, for which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, it is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. So the Jews clearly understood that he was claiming to be God himself. To the point they were ready to stone him for blasphemy. So those who say, oh, he didn't really say that, it's not you misunderstanding the words, it's pretty clear. John 5, 18, again, this was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So, sure, 
there's some distance between me and the authors. There's some, there's a few couple thousand years between. So I, I grant, you know, I can misunderstand when Jesus says, "Before Abraham was, I am." I, I can, I can be misunderstood. I could be uh, wrong about that. But we can clearly see how the Jews understood that, and that informs my understanding of his statements. We see uh, many, many more. Again, it's not going to be an exhaustive study, but we see that Jesus himself definitely claimed to be deity, claimed to be God. And, um, you know, he didn't do it in a uh, clumsy way like I would probably do. Yep, I'm God. <laughs> he did it in a much more uh, finesse, much more subtle, much more veiled um, manner, as it were. You know, he didn't come to Bethlehem. He didn't come to earth, you know, um, riding on a white horse and charging up to Rome and taking over the, the throne at that point. Could have. I believe that's how he'll come again. But his first coming, he was hit. The, the, the image of the Godhead was, was veiled in flesh, a little baby. And so his, his point was not to show off, as it were, that first time. In fact, many times we see, even in this passage, you know, he's often telling people who get it, hey, don't tell anybody yet. We mentioned this a couple weeks ago. You know, after we can have a whole discussion about why that is, what we get into, but it's just, bottom line, it's just one of the right time. There was going to come a time when he would be revealed to be the Son of God. But at this point, as people were understanding and gaining that, that knowledge through um, God revealing that to them, he would tell them, listen, don't, don't tell everybody yet. Just keep it between us for now. So he was veiling things. He was, he was keeping things in check. And even his claims of deity were somewhat veiled. So that those who have ears could hear and those who wouldn't, wouldn't. <clears throat> so we've seen what the Old Testament foretold, and he fulfilled those things. We saw what Jesus himself has said. What about those around him? Those around him who said, that's the question here today. We know a lot of people had a lot of different opinions. What about those who were close to him? Those disciples who were martyred for their faith, who were killed because they would not renounce who they believed Jesus to be. What did they believe about Jesus? Um, we look in Matthew 14, 33, after Peter had gone out and walked on the water and missed the storm and he had fallen, Jesus had pulled him back up and then they entered the boat and the sea was calm immediately. We read it that those in the boat worshipped him, saying, truly, you are the Son of God. They, they affirmed all this. Um, after his resurrection, in John 20, verse 28, we see Thomas coming to him, doubting Thomas, right? But doubting no more as he saw the resurrected Jesus before him and proclaimed, my Lord and my God. So, again, this is not going to be an exhaustive study, but I want us to understand that it's okay when people say, I don't know who Jesus was. That's okay. It's okay. He's been revealed, though. Okay? It's not okay to continue in ignorance. It's not okay to be willfully ignorant. And it's a huge mistake to say it doesn't matter. It does matter. I say it's the most important question we can ask, and there are answers to them. Let's keep looking. What about the New Testament authors, those who came immediately after Christ, who, again, many of whom were, were persecuted, um, driven out of their homes, spread across to strange lands across Asia Minor? Okay, What did these people have to say about him? Um, we see Paul writing in Titus 2. Uh, he's, he's writing, it says, he's waiting for our blessed hope 
the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Okay? And uh, there have been grammatical debates over this that have been put to rest many years ago. And um, this is clearly saying that God and Savior both refer to Jesus Christ. And um, so many, many verses I could have quoted from Paul. I just chose that one. But he clearly equates deity and the property of being his Savior to Jesus Christ. John, one of the disciples, of course, wrote the Gospel of John, but also wrote other letters and the book of Revelation, uh, has one of the clearest statements in John 1. In the beginning was what? The Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was what? God. A few verses later, he says, The Word, we all identified as God, became flesh and dwelt among us. It's Jesus. That's what his whole gospel is right, written about, is about this, this event where God became flesh. The Word who was with God and who actually was God took on flesh and dwelt among us. Without exception, the New Testament authors um, declare and affirm um, and agree that Jesus was God. Um, now, some will say, well, that's what the Bible says, but how can we trust the Bible? Now, I don't have time to get into a detailed study on, you know, um, textual criticism and uh, um, reliability of Scripture. But again, I just encourage you, if that's something that you wonder about or that's something you've been questioned about and didn't know how to answer, you know, the Bible can definitely stand up to scrutiny. Many, many very intelligent people have come and tried to approach the Bible with the intent of refuting it and showing its errors and showing that it is not reliable. And they have been thwarted. Many of them have been converted by their efforts or by their study of the Word in their efforts. So if, if these are the questions that you have or that you've been posed, I invite you to dig in. Do some work. Um, you, will, you will find that the Bible is true. Okay. When people typically reject it, typically, you know, you'll hear, in fact, I love watching these little, uh, you know, clips when people are on the street, you know, hey, what do you think about the Bible? And, uh, oh, it's got a lot of, a lot of errors. Oh, tell me one. Uh, they're all over the place. Okay, just give me one. Uh, yeah, I, I don't know. Well, how do you know there are errors? Well, everybody knows there are errors. I don't know there's errors. Who, who, who else knows besides you? And you don't even know what they are. So how do you know they are? You know, it's just this sort of mindset that people have this idea. Well, I heard somewhere. A teacher told me one time. It must be true. Right? Here's a... All right. If you're in school, close your ears, especially if you're homeschooled. Teachers are humans. Teachers can make mistakes. Teachers are people. They're not perfect. Okay, you can listen now. Okay. <laughs> Adam just had his world rocked back there. Except for your teachers. Your teachers are perfect, so... <laughs> no, just kidding. Uh, he's homeschooled. He's one of my sons. So we, anyway... Um, <clears throat> But uh, people who make a serious study of it don't come away with those understandings. People who make a serious study of it come away recognizing that, let's put it this way, at least the Christian faith is reasonable. And at best, it is the best explanation for the events of history that are recorded. 
Okay. Um, and I'll circle back to that and, and come, come back to that idea in a few minutes. But before we do, I want to say, well, what if, you know, those who doubt the veracity of Scripture, they say it's, you know, just written by a bunch of people who were trying to, trying to what? Trying to get themselves killed and uh, <laughs> abandoned, you know, hated by their families and friends and driven away. Uh, that worked out really well. Why would they want to do that? Anyway, that was what happened to most of these people who wrote the, the New Testament. But if you, if you don't doubt, if you do doubt them, then what about the other contemporaries? Those who aren't tainted by the faith, haven't been drinking the Kool-Aid, as it were. You know, what, what do those people say? Do we have any record of people who reported back then? We do. Um, again, there's, there's quite a few, not, not as many as the other categories I've talked about. If we looked at, see what other contemporaries meant uh, or uh, thought, did Jesus really exist? Because, let me, before I get into that, let me kind of frame this a little bit. So we've seen what the Old Testament said about Jesus. We've seen what Jesus said about himself. We've seen what his disciples and those around him said about him. And we've seen what those immediately after them had followed him. And so there's a classic uh, idea, argument, if you will, for Christ that says, if Jesus claims to be God, then he's one of three things, three L words. Who knows what they are? He's either a liar, or he's Lord, or he's a lunatic. Liar, Lord, or lunatic. Either he's deceiving people intentionally, he's a liar, or he's crazy, and he thinks he's God when he's really not, or he is the Lord of all. Now, modern... Um, atheistic apologists have added on a new one. Has anybody ever heard, the, there's a fourth one now that I can throw out. Anybody ever heard that one? Anybody know what this fourth one is? It is also an L. Yep, they were kind enough to keep it in the alliterative uh, book for us, so no. Legend. They say, well, maybe, okay, there's a fourth option. Maybe he's just a myth. Maybe this person, like Robin Hood, you know, um, yeah, maybe, maybe there was a person who inspired the myth of Robin Hood, but there was no real person, Robin Hood, who fought the sheriff of Nottingham and married Maid Marian and all these types of things. She won the archery contest, you know, never, that never happened. Well, I'm, I'm not going to dispute that about Robin Hood. I don't know anything about Robin Hood, except the story I read, you know. Um, not so with Jesus, though. But people will say that he's just a legend, and he's just been made bigger than life. And all these things were you know, written and after many years, after, centuries even after the fact. Okay? But we have biblical attestation much earlier. And then what I want to talk about to address that is, like I was getting to, a little bit ahead of myself, there are um, non-Christian contemporaries who recorded the life and events and corroborate the life and events that are listed in the Bible. Um, one is Tacitus and his work called The Annals. He specifically mentions Jesus Christ and his execution by Pilate. Um, and he then talks about the spread of Christianity, which he refers to as a most mischievous superstition. So this man was clearly not a convert, um, but uh, he documents the facts um, as the Bible reports him. And uh, there's no reason to do otherwise, um, except that's what actually happened. Josephus, of course, is one that many people know. And in his book, uh, his, his collective works called The Antiquities of the Jews, he makes reference to Jesus on at least two different occasions. Um, and again, you know, if you want to find out more details, obviously Google's your friend. And I'd be more than happy to discuss them with you. But 
we see from everything that I've talked about so far, there's, there is a veritable mountain of good evidence that Jesus was who he claimed to be, that Jesus was who I believe him to be. But there's a little more to the story than that. For some, there will never be enough evidence. You know what I mean? Some people are never going to believe something that they don't want to believe. Okay? Um, anybody, can anybody think of something, an area of life today where people reject obvious truth? Well-documented evidence? Anybody, anybody know some people who, who dispute the moon landing? Said they never went to the moon? Yeah, oh, yeah, you, you heard of these folks? Oh, yeah, flat earthers, yeah. You know, for a long time, people believed the earth was flat, and then we learned it was round, and now we're going back. We're regressing, right? Nothing new under the... You believe there's a sun? <laughs> That's what the flat earthers would say, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I remember the funny joke, because it's, uh, oh, you're one of those people who think we went to the moon, huh? And... uh it's at a, a conspiracy theorist convention. And they look at him, oh, you're one of those guys who believes there's a moon, huh? <laughs> and, uh, everybody just one up, up in everybody's conspiracy theories. Um, but sure, I mean, there are these people who dispute, you know, evidence. I mean, videographic evidence of these events, of the, the, um, the moon landing. And I said, oh, Stanley Kubrick directed that on a set in California. <laughs> And it's, it's very elaborate, and uh, it's, it's very interesting. Um, and again, hearing one side of the story can make you wonder. But there is solid evidence for these things. So people say, well, what would it take to believe in Jesus? Well, if we had a video recording, would you believe him? Well, maybe. <laughs> they wouldn't. They wouldn't. Um, and I think that even today we look at people, you know, typically on the, on the far left who deny the scientific evidence and believe that someone with XY chromosomes can become someone with XX chromosomes. There's no evidence for that. There's, there's zero. The only evidence is that someone who's born a man is going to be a man for the rest of his life. And if you, he's buried and you dig up his bones a thousand years from now, you'll see this was a man that was buried here. That's a fact. I'm not trying to step on people's toes. It's just a fact. And yet people will reject that evidence. Because of something they believe. Why would we think it would be any different with, with the gospel? A point is, and I want to, if, if you have your Bible, again, flip over to Matthew chapter 16. I don't often bring in the other gospel accounts of these events, but I think it's relevant here to our broader discussion. Matthew 16. Here we see Matthew's account of this same interaction with Jesus and his disciples. <clears throat> and we see that uh, in verse 16, let's go back to verse 15, Jesus poses the same question. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Verse 17, and Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona. You got the right answer. Good job. And what does he say after this? Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. How did Simon know that Jesus was the Messiah, that he was 
the Son of God. How do you know that? Not because he was convinced by the evidence. Not because he reasoned it out by himself. Not because he was a dumb fisherman who couldn't figure anything out and got fooled. Oh, we get with that as Christians, we get called that. Dummies who, who just get were naive. You know, everybody heard that? Oh, you Christians are just naive, simple-minded. You don't you just don't know you don't know anything. Poor little Christians. Yeah, we get that. That's not why Simon believed. Why did Simon believe? It wasn't from anything physical, flesh and blood. No, this none is evidence revealed. It was from it was divine revelation in his heart from God the Father. Now that's not changed, my friend. That is not changed. The Bible tells us that this book is a spiritual book, and its truths are only stood understood through a spiritual lens. Bible also tells us that man is naturally spiritually dead and that we're not going to understand these things. So I don't want to I want to encourage you that if you have experiences where you present evidence and argue and talk with people and try to reason with people, that's good. That's good. Because there are people who just don't know and there are people who want to understand. And <clears throat> certainly if we had a ridiculous faith, okay, then you can understand why people wouldn't grasp it. But we have a reasonable faith. We have a faith that stands up to scrutiny at the highest level. But it's still a faith. It's still that reasonable faith. So I want to encourage you, if you interact with people and you have people who want to have these discussions, go ahead and have them. You don't have to have all the answers because ultimately you're not going to convince them. You're not going to argue someone to salvation. It can't be done. Because these, these truths have to be revealed in the hearts of people through the power of the Holy Spirit, through God Himself revealing Himself, opening the eyes of our hearts so that we understand. doesn't mean we don't prepare and be ready to give an answer. If you're reading our SJT reading with us, <clears throat> we just came in Peter, where he actually instructs us clearly to be ready to give an answer for the hope that is in us, to, to answer these questions as best we're able to. But those aren't what's going to get people saved. Don't ever get bogged down with the details of the Old Testament prophecies or the grammar about who, what Jesus claimed. When people are discussing these things, always give them the gospel. That Jesus, the Son of God, just proclaim it, just state it. Jesus was God made flesh, came to earth, lived this perfect sinless life that we can't died on the cross, shedding His blood for the forgiveness of many. So all those who confess in their mouth and believe in their heart that God raised Him from the dead can become children of God. Just proclaim that to people. The gospel is the power of God to salvation, not our well-crafted arguments. So anytime you're interacting with someone, I want to encourage you, and I always make a habit of mine, if I'm talking to someone, we're on evangelism or whatever, I'll answer any questions they have as best I can, but I'm always going to make sure that I have a chance to give them the clear gospel message. That's what that's what's going to make, that's what changes hearts, that's what changes lives, that's what changed me. I'm sure that's the testimony of each one of you. So don't ever let an interaction slip by without actually presenting the gospel. Don't get tied up in all these 
You know, the Bible warns about genealogies and wasting time and, you know, things that don't matter. And then first and foremost, then probably even more important, just as important as that. I won't, you know, order them in more importance, but just as important as that, you pray for people. Pray that God would open their eyes. Pray that God would give them understanding because that's where it's going to come from. He uses us to deliver the message. Okay. But as we see testified here in Matthew, when someone understands the truth of who Jesus is, that's a divine revelation in their heart. It's a divine revelation in their heart. So to that end, two points. One, don't give up. Don't get discouraged. Don't think, well, I, I can't give a good enough presentation. You're right, you can't. I can't either. None of us could give a good enough presentation to save someone. Okay, but God can take our obedience when we deliver a message to someone. He can take that obedience that we do and follow through and do what little bit we can. And he, just like those bread and fishes we talked about last week, he can take our efforts and multiply them and turn them into something miraculous. And then number two, don't get discouraged. Okay, if someone doesn't listen, someone doesn't hear, and someone rejects the message that you're sharing, don't, don't get discouraged, don't get mad, don't get upset. Just continue to be faithful and pray for them. If you gave them the gospel message, it's in there. Rattle around their brain. It may be way in the back, but you can pray for them. God answers prayer, amen? Amen. And he doesn't always answer the first time we pray, does he? He's sovereign. We're not. Every prayer should always be from the position of, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Absolutely. So I've covered a lot here. Before we wrap up, you may have any questions about things I said specifically or maybe more broadly that you're, oh, man, I wish he'd cover this. I wish he'd mention this. I just heard somebody say this. Is it anybody? I mean, I don't know all the answers, but I just, you know, it's just us. You may have any questions? Yes, Alex. Yeah, so for those who may not have heard, Alex just asked a question, um, not doubting, you know, the points we made here, but someone then would go on the other side and say, well, therefore, we shouldn't prepare. You know, we shouldn't study. We, we're wasting our time to dig into these facts. Why would we need to read? Why do I need to know that Tacitus, you know, recorded these things about Jesus? Why do we spend any time crafting arguments, essentially, right? Does that answer your question? So... I think one I've already referred to, um, 1 Peter 1 tells us that we should always be ready to give an answer to the hope that is within us. Peter's expecting that people are going to be asking us, challenging us even. And he doesn't say, if someone challenges you, just tell them if you don't believe, then just go your own way. That's not the instruction that we have. If that was the instruction we have, then study would probably be a waste of time. But the instruction is that we should study and be ready Okay. Um, the other thing is, Alex, and this is less of a mandate and more just a practical thing. I think that while all of us believe, everyone here would, you know, hopefully would give affirmation, or most of us, you know, certain members here would give affirmation. Yes, I believe those things about Jesus. But 
none of us believe it perfectly. None of us believe it, I don't know, a thousand percent. What can I say? There are always going to be difficult things that come into our lives, whether it be a difficult challenge to our understanding, whether it be a difficult experience in our lives that we're facing that doesn't seem to be what we were expecting, that we thought, well, if we understood who Jesus is, then how do we explain whatever's happening? You know, whether that be, you know, personal things and difficulties, diseases, whether that be evil in general and wars and things like that. There, there are challenges that come up, you know. So while we believe, our faith can always be strengthened. And so I think when we dig in and even hear other challenges to the faith, and when we realize, oh, I've never heard that, let me study some then we may understand the Scripture even in a new way for our own edification. This strengthens our own faith. Um, the Bible tells us that, you know, as Christians, we should be like workmen who are studying to be approved before God because as we study, we are building up our own faith, building up on faith upon faith. And so I think those are some reasons why we should still study and um, there's value in those things. I don't think they're a futile exercise. Anybody else? Over here? Don't don't scratch your ear when I'm asking for questions, you know. I'll I'll call on you. <laughs> okay. So if you have other questions that occur to you later, again, reach out to me anytime. Um always willing and happy to discuss these things. What I want you to do is have a question and then say, Oh, that's a silly question. I it'll it'll you don't have time for that, or it's, it's, what are they going to think if I'm asking these kind of questions? They think I don't believe, no, there's no bad questions. Um, that's not entirely true. There are some bad questions, but <laughs> the, uh, um, you don't know they're bad until you ask them and you work through them and you say, okay, that was in the, yeah. But uh, the only really foolish question is a question you have and you don't ask um, because that's how you learn. Uh, some of you know I just have uh, gotten into the painting business and I have uh, sort of a mentor. And I always, I'm many times uh, during the days and weeks, prefacing and said, hey, this is one of my dumb questions. So I told him early on, I said, I'm going to ask lots of dumb questions because I'm ignorant about this business. And I don't want to remain ignorant. So when a question occurs to me, I'm going to ask it, even if it sounds dumb, because I'm dumb when it comes to this. So um, if you have a question, that means you're thinking. So please bring those up, ask those. Don't just... Uh, push it down and, you know, not pursue that. If that's a question in your mind, then you should follow it to its uh, logical conclusion and get the answer for it. But I want to come back to the question we started with. And uh, again, I want to ask this in a very direct and personal way. Who do you say Jesus is? Who today do you say Jesus is? In just a minute, we're going to sing a song. And then in there is when we talk about Jesus and particularly his death on the cross and, you know, historians, biblical and non-biblical scholars, historians, um, I think over 75% of them would agree with the first line of this. Behold the man upon the cross. That Jesus died, that Jesus was crucified um, in Galilee is almost indisputed. You know, the vast majority of scholars affirm that. But what does that mean to you? What does that mean to you?
Song goes on to say, this wasn't just a random person upon the cross, but my sin was upon his shoulders. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath brought me life. I know that it is finished. Andrew, if you want to come on up, we're going to sing in just a moment this song. But I want you to reflect on those words. I want to ask you, do you, hopefully after today you know who Jesus is, but do you know Jesus? Hopefully he's not just a, a name you hear in a figure of speech. But if you're here today and you've never submitted yourself to him as your Lord and Savior, you've never said, I'm going to follow him, what does that mean? and understood that we needed to deny ourselves, to take up our cross and follow Him daily, to live for Him, and to put our faith and trust in Him for the penalty for our sins. If you've never done that today, then you can do that today. I'd love to take a Bible and spend a little more time going into depth on how do you become a follower of Jesus? What does that look like? What does that mean? If you're here with a guest or someone today, then I would invite you, whoever brought you here today, they would love to take that, make that same study with you.